1: Why belong to the church when I have Jesus? That's what was printed on the IVs. That's kind of how we've wanted to theme this this event today. Now, it's one question, but underneath that question are several other questions. Now, I know that some of us gathered here today are probably not Christians at all. Some of us aren't part of a recognized church. Others of us are part of one but perhaps not too happy with how things are going in the church. Still, some of us like to go occasionally to various churches without committing to any, and some of us do belong to one church, but are curious as to what this event is all about. Now, If you fall in any of those five categories, can I just say that we are happy that you're here? And I mean that. Whether or not you agree with what I say at the end of this whole thing, at least we're here, and that says that we are willing to engage. Now, newsflash. As a pastor, I believe that the church is very, very important. And in fact, central to God's plan for humanity. But I'm also aware that the church, many times, is a bit of a mess. And often, or people's views about the church are often because of legitimate hurts that they've suffered. And that may be you here today. Now, but I want to talk from experience, uh, because you may feel as a pastor, you can't really understand what I'm talking about. But here's my own experience. In the short time I've been on this earth, I've belonged to no less than eight churches. And when I say churches, I mean the churches that I've been committed to. Some of them, I had no choice as to whether or not I could be part of them. One church, I left, and no one even noticed that I had gone. No one cared, no one called me. Another one, I liked the church, but eventually they forced me out. And another, the one I spent the most amount of time with, I left, but with a little, a lot of misunderstanding. And yet, you know, some, there were some smears that were attached to my, my name, I will say inaccurate. I'm sure the people will say very, very accurate. And there was another church, the best of the lot, I had to leave because uh, my family and I were relocating. Now, you see, while the Lord did many wonderful and crucial things through some of these churches, it's sad to say that I can certainly only be part of two of those eight churches, and I'm pastoring one of them. (laughs) So I show all of that to show you that I won't be addressing this topic from a kind of scholastic and experienced expertise. No, I want to talk to you as one who has experienced far too much of the agonies of the church Life And yet, one who more than at any point in his life believes that a commitment to a local, imperfect, but healthy church is necessary and vital for every Christian. I think it's God's will and it has always been his plan. Now, I know there are genuine objections to this sentiment. And so, I want to begin our conversation together in addressing three of such, represented by my three friends here. And these objections will be, there are three of them, one is I do not belong to a church because the church is an organism and not an organization. The second is I do not belong to a church because of badly behaving pastors. And the third is I do not belong to a church because I am spiritual, not religious. So after that, then I'll make a brief argument for the church, and then we'll close this section. So... Let me introduce my first friend, Chiney. Chiney has a lot that she wants to get off her chest. So Chiney, please, can you come? Thank you. What is going on? Why aren't you part of the church?
2: Hi. I find the premise of this event question a bit confusing because I do go to church. It's just not the building. I actually have church when I worship and then listen to my favorite pastor's online streamed messages at home. I also have church during my personal devotion or fellowship with my spouse. Finally, even though I do not go anywhere on Sunday mornings, I and a couple of friends of like minds gather on Friday evenings. We share the Bible together, sing songs together, and are much more communal than any so-called church. Things aren't too structured like we have it today, with all the activities, programs, rehearsals, and so on. We just want to be bare and honest before God so that we can connect with him without the hindrances that structures create. You see, church is an organism, not an organization. So I go to church already, just not the kind that you're used to.
1: Oh, Thank you very much. So what shall we say to that? Now, for most of us, if we are being frank, there's something cold and impersonal about structure. I mean, think about it. When you refer to structure, you can't refer to structure as he or she. Structure is is an it. Then when you consider the biblical metaphors for the church, things like the vine and branches or the more popular body of Christ, these are very organic and inherently possess life. So when you compare that with what structure is, or calling structure, it's very easy to understand why people cringe. Because structure comes with its hierarchies. Think of elders, deacons, members, or its programs, women's Bible studies, theology days, evangelism Saturday, student prayer meetings, its budgets, its legal papers, accountability mechanisms, all of that. It's even more disheartening when our focus or at least the focus of all uh, those who are running the church is all about a superstructure that they spent their whole lifetime building. You see, it rightly leads us to ask how did the church become all about this? Since when do I need an evangelism program to talk about Christ? You don't. Why do I need to, some guy strumming of a guitar in the front before I can sing songs to my God? Again, you don't. I agree with you. In fact, As long as church gathering and existence is primarily about something else apart from the worship of God and the accomplishment of his mission, then we have a problem. In fact, a very, very big problem. Sadly, it's the case that a lot of churches have moved in this direction. We have not adequately recognized the organic element of the church, because the church really is an organism. But. And you knew the bot was coming, right? Well, what would be the use of you being here? But it's a very big bot. The church is also an organization. I mean, first of all, think about it. I don't know how many of us did biology in secondary school. Biology, yeah, anyone? I know you don't remember a thing about but at least you did. All right. But the thing about it is, have you, do you remember any? there is no organism, any organism, bacterial or what have you? Think, tell me one organism that exists without having an underlying structure that supports its life. You see, nothing organic, no organism can live without structure. You see, but the structure, however, is there to serve a larger purpose, not the structure itself. I'll give you an example. Blood circulation in our bodies is not the reason for life, is it? Right, you don't exist because your your blood is flowing. But if your blood does not flow, you will never attain or actualize the reason for life because you won't have any life. And it's the same thing. The more we comb through the scriptures, we find the Lord's church pictured, whether it's in universal terms, as we see in Hebrews 12, 28, the church of the firstborn, but also in local terms, like the church at Colossae or the church at Philippi. The structures are there not because that's what the church is about, but the structures are there to support the life of the church. Let me give you one crucial passage. It's a short one in 1 Peter 2 to 4. Uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 4 to 5. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 5. It says this: As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, those two verses shows us three things about the church. And I would say very comprehensive things. The first thing it shows us is that the church refers to a people, not a person. You know, when it says, as you come, the you there is not a singular you. The you there is a plural you. Second... The people are a distinct people. It says, as you come to the living stone. But that living stone is also a rejected and chosen stone. In other words, the people that are coming are people who have received the rejected stone, that's Jesus crucified. But the living stone, the chosen stone, the anointed one who is Lord, they are distinct people that come to God through Jesus Christ. And then the third thing is that It refers to their organization. Notice, it says they are being built into a spiritual house. Now, it's no ordinary spiritual house. If you read Ephesians 2 verse 20 to 21, it says this is a house that is being built together for a dwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, it is a spiritual house, but nonetheless, it's a house. That is... We can say from this scripture, if you want to use three words, that the church is an organized, distinct people. And for all the organic metaphors used to describe the church, we find that they are inorganic ones as well. Like when Jesus says, I will build my church. Oh, built. Very, very inorganic. Or if you go to 1 Timothy uh, uh, 3, 14 to 15, Paul can talk about the church as the pillar, the household of God, of God but, uh, but it's also the pillar, foundation of the truth. Household, pillar, foundation. You see, and even in that same place, Paul says, I'm giving you instructions. So the talk of a spiritual house or the building of living stones therefore leads me to say that the church is also is as much as we want to say an organism, it's an organized organism. You see, we like the spontaneous and the organic community, and so does the Bible. Remember, the spirit resides in the church. Over structured, cold communities are of benefit to no one. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, and if you ever want to know Um, The longest passage in the whole of Scripture, at least the New Testament, that talks about the gathering of the church is the whole 1 1 Corinthians 14. Unfortunately, most people think of 1 Corinthians 14, and we only think about prophesying and tongues. But Paul is giving a long discussion about what it means to gather in the church. And so he's trying to balance two things. One is spontaneity, and the other one is order. So Paul can say, for instance, by all means, prophesy, prophesy in the church. He says, but do it in twos and uh, do only two, at most three. And make sure you do it one by one. Speak in tongues, but let there be an interpreter. And let not be everyone jabbering all around. He's trying to balance spontaneity and order. Or even when you go to 2 Corinthians 9, and he's talking about giving, he says, give spontaneously, by all means, and do not be compelled. But at the same time, plan for regular giving. Remember, structures are there to ensure better delivery of life and not to stifle life. Take leaders, for example. Just the mere mention of leaders shows that the Bible sees the church in hierarchical terms. They are the leaders and therefore they are the led. However, the manner in which these leaders are to govern so as not to hurt or abuse the sheep is also stated in the Bible. For instance, 1 Peter 5, 2 to 3. 5, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Guys, the answer to a bad way of doing church is neither to leave the church or to redefine it, but is to seek for a more biblical view in the structure and outworking of this. And maybe I may challenge us. You must ask yourself if your absence from the church is a reaction to bad experiences than it is to biblical fidelity. Well, maybe I've said too much on that. And I know that my friend, Bio has been itching to get something off his chest. So, Bio, what is your own problem with the church?
3: Yes, I understand the need for structure. In fact, in the absence of structures, sorry, the, fact, the absence of proper structures forms the basis of some of my grievances. I'm neither a preacher, I'm not a pastor, a man of God. But I've read the Bible a couple of times and I think I have the spirit. I have listened to my pastor preaching and observed his lifestyle closely for two years. (laughs) I've been a part of his church and I can safely say he's filled with unbiblical greed and he conducts himself with little or no accountability to the church. He acts like it's the Alpha and Omega. And the church seems to have a center, everything around him. Special sofa for him. His face all over the billboards. Social media pages, and so on and so forth. Isn't there something wrong with this picture? Not his picture, I mean the scenario I'm painting. You understand? And then they'll say, I am touching... The Lord's anointed. Touch not his anointed. If you think my criticism seems too far, I see this all around churches. Then I think I'm better off without the church.
1: Mm. Where do we go with that? Well, first of all, I don't. I don't think I'm alpha and omega. I just think I'm alpha. But you know, let's <laughs> just, uh, let's, let's put that aside. But let's start by stating the gospel truth. Bayer is correct. There is something wrong with this picture. Even if you don't agree that it should lead to someone leaving a church, are you willing to entertain the fact that those feeling this way may have had personal encounters on this issue that far outstrip what you may have witnessed or experienced? You see, for a lot of non-Christians, the money and the power issue of the church, especially as it relates to the church leaders, is a massive problem. Take, for instance, Daddy Freeze, the convener of the Free the Sheeple movement and the leader of the hashtag free nation. Most of us, he only featured on our radars for the first time really because of this issue. You know, when in church, it always seems like the solution to every kind of problem ends up, yet again, with you having to dig, dip your hand into your pocket. Consequently, it also seems like the church has reached a place where lack of money is being diagnosed as humanity's greatest and deepest need. Everywhere issues that even where issues that border on eternity and the unique salvation that Christ offers are spoken about in the church it ends up being people just paying lip service to it. You know, sometimes you watch, unfortunately, some of the shows on TV, and after the person has spoken about money and all the different things that you can do just so this particular seed, then they now have these 30 seconds of, but if you want to, all of these things, you have to give your life to Jesus Christ now. And then they say, just say this prayer after me. It's all just lip service. Right now, all these Truths. These eternal truths hardly feature at the center of quite a lot of ministries. And there's also the additional concern that pastors who are flawed men like every other Christian, sometimes even more flawed, of course I am exonerated here, um, they have too much unfettered power in churches they lead. Though Christ is often said to be the head of the church, you just wouldn't know it in the way many men of God unilaterally take decisions in the church like it's their family property. A woman once came to meet me and was talking about a particular church, and she was talking, she said, now, this is your church. I said, no, it's not my church. She said, eh, but you know we know that it's your church. I said, no, it's, it's, not, it's not actually my church. She said, it's your church now. He said, are you going to say that was that pastor there, that that church is not his church? I said, we have a board of trustees. I actually don't have shares in this. <laughs> he said, okay, anyway, this is your church. And she continued what she was saying. You see, even some pastors are simply unable to be reprimanded for brazenly wrong actions and display of behavior since they are above any church constitution. In fact, some will argue that they themselves are the very constitution. You see, the problem is that the accountability structures where they exist... For the movement of money, decision-making, and so on that's meant to underpin a lot of the church's activities does not take seriously the fact that these pastors are prone to error and temptation like you and I. Though they are said to be mortals, they are often treated like demigods because the impression is given that they have a unique connection to the divine that make them beyond human questioning. These are facts facts that we all should grieve over, and facts that no one should ever be silenced over. And yet, for all that being said, this, I contend, is not reason enough not to be committed to a local, healthy, and imperfect church. You must not make the mistakes some Nigerians make, eh, and non-Nigerians make. I don't know if you've ever heard the person, maybe abroad or something, that says... Well, I will never do any business deal with any Nigerian. Why? Because all Nigerians are four or nine internet scammers, right? Yes. Now, that sounds a bit wrong-headed. It's like, really, you met two or three. They sent you a couple of emails. And now, 160 million people are all like that? We shouldn't make that mistake. But first, before I even get into argument, can I first appeal with some of us here to show some Christian empathy with the people we often say do not have any brains because they've been and continue to be scammed by these people. You see, our country is in desperate need of hope. Too many people are deceived largely because they are desperate. Desperate because their conditions are so dire that only God can deliver them. Since they cannot look to family, society, or government to help, their only hope is in God. It is within this vulnerable context, because the fact that they view the man of God as their closest access to God, that they end up as prey for religious charlatans. Though these people are wrong, and I'm not saying they are right, for sowing all the different kinds of seed and always re- expecting a return that never comes, though they are wrong, they are victims, victims deserving of our empathy. Now, but additionally, especially if you are really committed to the Bible, you should expect this to happen. Why? Because the scriptures have already foretold it. Take 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 to 4, for instance. He says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So now there are so many myths, some of them you cannot make them up. It is just, they are fantastical if you like, if you like to put a word there. But the Bible has already spoken about it. In fact, as, things, as bad as things are, you should be comforted by the reliability of the Bible's ability to predict this kind of thing 2,000 years before it occurred. However, those same scriptures that affirm the presence of false teachers all over the place does not recommend that we leave the church. In fact, the verses I just quoted are taken from Paul's writings to Timothy. And Paul, in his two letters to Timothy, is arguing for how faithfulness and sanity should be maintained in the church not outside of the church. You see, the things that make you grieve about what's happening in the church is an argument for a healthier church and therefore a reformation within the church, not an exodus from the church. Well, maybe that's not your problem. Maybe you've dealt with the whole money thing. Maybe your problem is the kind that Hawa has. Hawa? is really big on a problem, and if I don't allow her to speak now, she probably will But So, Howard, please come and tell us what you have to say.
0: Well, my issue with church has to do with all the unnecessary doctrines and rules. Don't do this, don't wear that. Doesn't it seem like we're more concerned with learning deep things and rule conformity than enjoying and experiencing the Spirit? I cannot tell you how often God speaks to me, to my spirit, when I'm alone in solitude. This never happens in church because of all the hindrances of religion. Jesus came to give us life, not religion, lest we forget. Jesus wasn't a Christian, so I don't think I have to be one. Well, at least not in the traditional sense either. After all, I'm not saved by going to church. Why do we even bother with all its man-made doctrines, rules, which limit freedom, quench the spirit, and divide humanity? Consider how last year's Hallelujah Challenge broke down boundaries among Christians, whereas religion puts up walls. I hope you can see that it's spirituality, not religion, that we need.
1: Hmm. Well, thank you, Hawa. Now, depending on how old you are, there's a very strong possibility that in the church you have at one time or the other had to endure those church stares from Sister Bosse. Right, that dark auntie with scarf put in there, and you come in and she's looking, looking. Put down your skirt. <laughs> Pull it down. Or the pastor's wife, who certainly mentions to you that Christian men don't wear chains. <laughs> now, in 2005, that happened to me. I'm just saying. <laughs> Surely, you've come across those who tell you that Any small taste of alcohol is expressly forbidden in the Bible. And then, of course, you have those that tell you straight away not going to church will make you land in hell. Yikes. So you've heard all of these things growing in the church, and then one day you are reading your Bible and you open to Romans chapter 14. Verses 5 to 6 and verse 17. And it's not something like this. One person considers one day more sacred than the another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convicted in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the day you read that, you felt liberated. Liberated. I can eat and drink what I want. What is that problem? You want your own skirt reaching your ankle. I want my own skirt above my knee. What is your problem? I'm doing it unto the Lord. I'm wearing stilettos and high heels and saying amen to Jesus. (laughs) Why can't you handle that? And after after you felt the freedom, the next thing you felt was resolve. Resolve that I will never give in to these rules again, which have denied me joy in the Holy Spirit. And it's similar to some of us that have witnessed the splitting of churches over one doctrine that someone said God had revealed to him. You see, things were nice and dandy in the church until that person, who happened to be one of the leaders, started beginning to impose that doctrine upon people, and then division began, and once again, rather than experiencing joy in the spirit, you start getting division and bitterness, all because somebody has brought in one doctrine or the other. See, these are the results of being part of the church. And so the alternative for you is to do away with the corrupted religion of the church and pursue only the pure spirituality of being led by the Holy Spirit. I know where you come from. On a personal note, I am totally allergic to sectarianism in the church. And by sectarianism, I mean the unnecessary things that bring about division, is something i cannot stomach it's hurt me before and i've seen it hurt countless others as well it isn't pleasant so i feel your pain and yet yet i really do disagree with you first of all it is first of all it's not true it is true that we are not saved by going to church but it's also true that we are not saved by avoiding sexual immorality You see, nonetheless, if you commit sexual immorality, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Having proven that you are not really a Christian, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral nor idolaters and so on will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, when you continuously disobey implicit and explicit biblical commands, it's fair game to question your salvation. So no, you are not saved by going to church, but avoiding it questions your salvation. Second, when it comes to doctrine, because I don't really believe, we really do not have any choice. Because it's not true that non-religious spiritual people don't have doctrines. I'll say that again. It's not true that non-religious spiritual people do not have doctrines. Let me ask three questions. Does it matter to you if there is one God? Does it matter to you if Jesus is God come in the flesh? Does it matter to you if he is the only way to God? Now, if you have an opinion, any opinion on either of these questions and more, then you have doctrines, lots of them. And let me tell you one more thing. If your opinion differs from my opinion on those questions, then you have just contributed to the division that doctrine brings. You see, the real distinction is whether our doctrine is false or sound. It is not whether or not we have it at all. Take, for instance, 1 Timothy uh, 1 Timothy 1, 3, 10, and Titus 2. It says this. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. For the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Guys, sound doctrine is our friend, especially if you are the spiritual type. Sound doctrine is your friend because it teaches you about God and how to worship him rightly in what? Spirit, spiritual, but in what as well? Truth. Which is, after all, what God seeks and what we need. Jesus says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And don't forget, he made that comment when he was having a theological doctrinal debate with the woman at the well. Let me ask you if that's the doctrinal one, what about rules? Let me ask you a question. In your non spiritual, in your non religious spiritual meetings, do you insist one person not lead? so as to allow the spirit to take control. We don't want anyone leading here, right? We don't want anybody trying to, we want the spirit. Do you insist that in your spiritual meetings, Or do you insist that people do not act judgmentally towards another person? If somebody, you know, gives his own opinion about something, you don't, even if you don't agree, don't be judgmental or don't judge. That is what it means to him. Or do you insist that people interpret scripture for themselves and not allow others do it for them? If you have answers to any of these questions, then, guess what, you have rules. Lots of them. Now, if you still protest, Femi, I don't have rules. I have news for you. Because your rule is you have no rules. (laughs) Such that anyone that is seeking to introduce rules will be breaking your rule of not having rules. Please wake up. It's impossible not to have rules. Once you have doctrine beliefs, or doctrines or beliefs as we've established, that we all do, rules, instructions will naturally emerge, or will be left with confusion. But I think I get it. Maybe what you are really getting at is the fact that you feel that rules stifle freedom. They stifle expression. I remember once hearing uh, talk about, he asked him what is music, what is art, what is art? He said, art is an expression of myself. We don't need all rules and dogma and all of those things. And I thought, "Hmm. if I just take a visual artist, for instance, if a visual artist says, I don't have any boundaries, I don't have any rules, I like to express myself, the first question I want to ask is, do you paint on a canvas? And if you paint on a canvas, I think the canvas has certain, a certain dimension, right? I think there is a rule in all your abstract expression that says, I can't paint over that. The world is not your canvas. If the world was your canvas to paint in the whole world, guess what you will not have? You will not have any painting. So maybe our problem is, oh, no, it's it's stifles Freedom, but you see, it's a misunderstanding of what freedom is. Because freedom is not the absence of restrictions. Rather, it is the ability to flourish under the right restrictions. i say it again. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. Rather, it is the ability to flourish under the right restrictions. It is important in this regard to make an import, a distinction between freedom from and freedom to. The former exists for the purpose of the latter. We must get freedom from something in order to have freedom to do something. For instance, freedom from slavery is not an argument for disobeying good civil laws. In fact, it's an argument for living under a just state with good rules. Israel cried out to God and for God to deliver them out of bondage. God delivered them, and what's the next thing God did? He gave them rules. Let me give you one more example. If, for instance, you rail against enforcement of traffic laws on our streets in protest against being told what to do because it's curbing your individual liberty and freedom, you will quickly, if all of us did that, you will quickly discover an even greater curb on your freedom. It's called traffic jams. The rules of traffic are there to enable us have the freedom on our roads. So, when a non Christian accepts God's grace, free grace, through Christ, he is not moving from a life of lawlessness into one that now he's under tyranny. No. Rather, he moves from living under sin, which is a slave master, to living under Christ's law which leads to freedom and flourishing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 21, I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. You see, Peter tells us something. In 1 Peter 2, 16, he says, we are both free and we are slaves. He says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. And so if you're trying to have, you say you want to be spiritual but not religious, can I say, the best way to be spiritual is to be under the right religion. Now, those are three objections. I just want to close with making a quick biblical, um, a quick biblical argument, or just to run through the Bible for you to see why being in a church community has always been part of God's plan. And then I'll identify for us maybe one thing we should look out for. So, one of the things we discovered when God made humanity in Genesis chapter 2 was that although all that God made was good, there was a situation with what God created that was not good. Do you remember that? He said everything was good, and he now came to a point where he said, it is not good, and what was it? So, what wasn't good was loneliness, It's also why part of God's mandate for the first human pair, for Adam and Eve, was multiplication through fruitfulness. Why? He wanted them to multiply and to be fruitful because, again, it is not good for man to be alone. We are born to live in community. Now, remember in Genesis chapter 3, we see a fall. And if you go from Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and you go all the way to Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, what you see there is the destructive effect of community. It said the people were in one accord. And because they were in one accord and they spoke one language, they wanted to rebel against God. But that didn't end God's plan of salvation through community. In fact, God's salvation plan firmly included a central role for community when in his promise to bless all the families and the nations of the earth through Abraham. Remember, God met Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 because of what happened in Bible in Genesis chapter 11. What did God tell Abraham? He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. That great nation was Israel, God's covenant, old covenant people. Though this Israel, God gave them plenty of laws, at the end of the day, all the laws could be summarized under love for God and what? Love for neighbor. You see, the second law is an outworking of the first. If you truly love the God that delivered you from Egypt, then you will love the other people he delivered too. Laws were given to demonstrate what it meant to actually love. You see, when God's rules are used properly, the result is love expressed. So, what happened when the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ, came? Well, when he came, he came as a citizen of this nation, Israel, and after his atoning death, and he said, This death is for the sheep. He didn't just say he died for an individual, he said, I died for, I laid down my life for my sheep, plural, or I laid down my life for my bride. Plural. After his death and his resurrection, what did he do? He began a new nation or a community to replace Israel. Notice, though, that when he commissions them, what they are to do is to go into the world to do what? Baptize, right? To make disciples of all nations. How do you make disciples of all nations? Baptize them. What's baptism based on? It's based on a a doctrine. And he says you should teach them to obey. Observe all the commandments. So you see that this community was based on teach on doctrine. It was based also on rules. And it was also based on structure. If you go to Titus 1 verse 5, Paul says, As you set up a church, put in elders in every town or leaders. So just like in God's Old Testament community where there were lords, in his New Testament community, the church, there are laws. But as Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 5, that community is based on love. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you do what? If you love one another. This is the church. You see, the church is a communal place. And many times we have lost that. And one of the things as we live in the city of Lagos here that we battle with is the problem of what we can call individualism. I remember growing up, I knew almost everybody in my neighborhood. Nowadays, I don't know the person, my next door neighbor. I'm not joking. I don't know my next door neighbor's wife, and we've been neighbors for almost two years. Everybody wants to keep to themselves. Nobody wants to be told what to do. I am my own law, and this is a problem. When you come with church that has laws, that has rules, but those laws and rules are meant to express love. You see, Christianity is personal, but it's not private. Being in church does not mean that you lose your individuality. Rather, community helps bring out and shape your individuality towards the image of Christ. If I put you on an island for 10 years alone, on an isolated island, you will not know anything about yourself. You just know that you probably hate being on an island. It is in close relationships with people, as your family or your your spouse or the church, it is in close relationships that you can find out your tolerance for irritation, your ability to love people and be patient with people and not run away from people. You can say, I'm a very patient person. I'm a very impatient person. Really, you're a patient person. right?" Has someone really irritated you? And that is why in Hebrews 10 verse 25, that fantastic uh, 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 section that says that we, should con- uh, that we should not forsake the assembling of one another, it says, let us consider how we may spur one another unto love and good deeds. Notice the word spur. It didn't just say come and all sing kumbaya. It's all going to be fine. No, it's saying come. You will annoy one another, but in the annoying of one another, you will show love and you will show patience. And that is how we become like Christ. You can't just become like Christ in your own living room. Listen to your favorite pastor's sermon podcast. It's not enough. Now, I know this. Church isn't always pretty. It's messy. But in case you don't know, the Holy Spirit is a specialist at working with messy people. And we can achieve a whole lot more together when we are committed. Someone once said, the hand is more deadly as a fist than as five individual fingers. So it is with Christ's church. Finally, finally, after all I have said, some of us are legitimately asking, that doesn't mean I can go down that ch- to that church down my street. And I'm thinking, I've, I've thought of four or five churches. I don't think I can be part of those churches. We, are fun- we fundamentally disagree. I hate the way things are being run there. And so you're asking the question, how can I know which church to attend? And let me say this, I confess to you, it is not always easy. No church is perfect. If you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. (laughs) However, even though there is no perfect church, this does not mean that there is no healthy church. You see, what you need, as I've said over and over again, is a local, imperfect, but healthy church. So, let me give you two ways of identifying, two very sure ways of identifying a healthy church. And it has to do With the presence and the place of the gospel. Just give me three more minutes and I'll be done. The presence of the gospel is whether or not the gospel shows up. By gospel, I'm not saying what everybody just says, well, the gospel, preach the gospel. No, I mean a very specific thing. The gospel is the good news that the incarnate crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is the risen Lord and impending judge of the world. And that through repentance and faith in this message, sinners are delivered from eternal misery, assured of eternal bliss, and are currently transformed more and more into Christ-likeness in anticipation of his return. That is what I mean. It is a scandal that people go week in and week out to church and have never heard it preached properly. I know this because I have asked many church veterans to describe what the gospel is to me I mean, when I say church veterans, I'm talking about 10 years, 20 years. If I ask them, describe what the gospel is to me, they just really don't know. It's not enough that the word gospel is banded around, but what gospel is being preached. Because, as Paul says, there is not another gospel. There is only one gospel. Now this is extremely important because without it you cannot really sustain the health of a church. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 3, 4 to 8. But when the, kindness of, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace. We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Paul wrote this to Titus. And after he said all this, which you will identify as the gospel, he wrote this to Titus as Titus was setting up a church. Listen to what he says in verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, he's talking about Christians. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to what is good. Can I tell you something? You cannot devote yourself to what is not being stressed. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Churches that yield to Paul's counsel will avoid a lot of the excesses that we have already decried earlier that have frustrated a lot of you who have given up on the church. But if that's the presence of the gospel, the second is the place of the gospel. And by that, the place of the gospel, that concerns whether or not the gospel is at the center of the church's life. You see, cultures change, societies change. Paul was not reading his Bible on his smartphone, and neither was Peter preaching using a lapel mic. How we do church and all the aids we employ will change over time. However, the central place of the gospel must not change. The gospel must affect not only how we bring people into the kingdom, but it must also affect how people are built up in the kingdom. By this I mean the gospel is not the ABC, but the A to Z of Christianity. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself for him. the church, the, the gospel. People are to forgive one another. And I often say there are many reasons why you can forgive um, uh, people, right? You can forgive people, uh, let's say, if I'm, I'm with someone that has billions and I want to have a contract with him later. If it does, if he does anything bad to me and I says, ah, why are you angry, Dan? I'll never do business with him again. Yeah. <laughs> Sayonara. <laughs> There are many reasons why we can forgive, but Paul in Ephesians 4, 32 says, Forgive one another as God has forgiven you, what? In Christ, the gospel. And it's the same thing when it comes to generosity. In 2 Corinthians 9, he says we should be generous in accordance with our profession of the gospel. Peter can speak to Paul, uh, uh, Paul can speak to Peter, and said, "You are moving away. You are being a racist. This is not what the gospel teaches you." He said he was not living in line in accordance with the gospel. You see, even our holiness in one Corinthians six, Paul can say, "You should not be sleeping with people that are not your, your that is not your spouse." Why? Because in the gospel, the but the price that was put for your body is nothing more, th- and nothing less than the death of the Son of God. Do you understand? The gospel is not the ABC, but the A to Z of Christianity. And when in our churches the gospel does not have a central place, when it is about trying to raise a building, when it's about just trying to raise our profile, or the pastor's profile, which isn't a bad thing, but let's leave that side. But When it's all of these different things, when we're trying to motivate people to be generous by scaring them or by saying that God is going to triple or double or all the things that you put, we have a problem. But if the gospel is at the center, then your church is going, is on the pathway to being healthy. Guys, if you profess to be a Christian and you love Christ, and not his wife, can I ask you, please, based on all the things we've said, can you reconsider your decision? Find a healthy church. Join it. Get spiritually healthier. And make sure you are one of the reasons it's becoming healthier. Thank you.
2: All right, so now we have a short uh, break. Can please stretch your legs, um, use the loo, or have some snacks in the, in the other room, and they will assemble here again in 15 minutes. Um, no. I <laughs> actually meant there's an actual other room. There. <laughs> All right.